Hello, Mainly fans! Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. Shout out to our Kiwi listeners in New Zealand, and to those of you following us from Guam. May the fandom spread. When many people think of Maine, they often think of its beautiful rocky coasts, lighthouses, and lobster fishing. But Maine's maritime economy has always involved more than lobsters. 100 years ago, Eastport, right on the Canadian border, was a hub of sardine production, with hundreds of workers canning the bountiful catch brought in by a thriving community of independent fishermen. Those boom times are long gone. How and why that happened is a story of changing industrial practices, ecological shifts, and evolving consumer tastes. Today's guest, a colleague of mine from Bridgewater State University, is a scholar of environmental and labor history, with particular focus on maritime issues in both the US and Canada. Brian is not only a thorough historian, but, and this is vital for a scholar of the Sardine canneries, he is candid. Yeah, you thought I was going to open with fish wordplay, huh? You were wrong. Let's do this. My guest today is Brian Payne, professor of history at Bridgewater State University. His work focuses on the environmental, labor, and economic history of Atlantic Canada and New England. Brian, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Happy to be here. A lot of your work has focused on the rise of a food industry in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. When you talk about a food industry, what are we talking about? What kind of changes are happening in terms of how food is being sold and transported and consumed that was different than, say, you know, before the American Civil War? That's a great question to get us started. In a word, we could say processed. And so what's happening uh, as we move into the middle decades of the 19th century and into the later decades of that century, and certainly by about 1900, more and more uh, North Americans are turning to the market to purchase uh, food commodities. And uh, that process begins uh, sort of the mid-century. And as we move into the later parts of the 19th century, we're starting to see them purchase more and more processed uh, foods. So there's an increase in the commodification of food. Uh, there's a distancing between the consumer and the actual producer of those foods, um, a sort of lack of awareness of where food is coming from. Uh, okay. But at the same time, we also see an increase in scientific investigation of food and understanding what nutrition is. And eventually, as we get into the 1920s, uh, things like vitamins and minerals begin to complicate our understanding of, of what we're eating and why we're eating it and what it's doing to our bodies. Okay. And as an early modern historian, I have to to kind of give a reminder to everybody that you know, people are eating food that comes from far away well before the Industrial Revolution, thinking of, as Brian, you well know, the, the North Atlantic cod fisheries 
are supplying consumers over a, you know across Europe and, and even farther afield in some cases. And so it's not like everybody's eating local before you know the age of, of industrial production. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah. certainly then there's these processes accelerate. So in the in the late 19th century, if you could just get a background too, because you mentioned thoughts about nutrition, is there a sense that food that is canned or you know mass-produced flour or something is better or fancier or maybe even healthier, or or is it the opposite, or or do people just not pay that much attention? Yeah, I think we we start to get into more consumer conversations about that as we get into the very end of the 19th century. It's really that's more into the 20th century when people start having those conversations. Early on, there is a, a sense that the processed food is better because it represents a stage of modernity. And we get into that larger cultural conversation of the late 19th century when people are embracing all things that appear modern. Um, and rejecting traditions um, that that they see as as backwards and stuff that their parents and grandparents used to do is is less trustworthy now. Mm-hmm. So there there is a sense that these are better, but not in the not in the way we would understand being better nutritionally for you, but better from a cultural perspective. Uh, there are, of course, resistance to that, and I've are, I've written uh, some pieces on the resistance to refined white flour as not being a healthy uh, choice. And and most people understood that, uh, that white flour was unhealthy, but they liked the purity of it. We see that word purity used quite a bit in the defense of it and the advertising of it. Uh, as far as canning, it was really just seen as a, a, a new modern way of approaching food and a way to liberate someone's from the, the confines of nature that you can you can eat fruits and vegetables any time of the year uh, once it's canned and you can take it with you to far off places and it, it will liberate you from the confines of of nature that was restricting your your diet I like that and I'm going to remind some of my friends that when I because I I love some canned produce because I don't like going to the grocery store constantly, and I also don't like food waste, and I also yeah. like certain kinds of vegetables and other things. So I'm like, yes, I'm liberating myself from nature. So <laughs> you know, so I'm glad you you brought up uh, canning because, of course, uh, a big focus of, of a lot of your work is on a a very crucial aspect of of the economy and life of the the main Canadian borderlands, or at least it was. Uh, and that was the the herring fishery, and then its transformation into canned sardines. And I have a really basic question, and I'm embarrassed to say that before I was reading more of your work, I had no idea that there's not sardines swimming around in the wild, and instead they're what you get when you turn canned fish into something else. Could you elaborate on that? Like this is... Uh, are all sardines herring or what's yeah, what's going yeah. on here when we go wild fish into the can that we then buy and become sardines? Yeah, sardines is like one of those commodities that's not really clear exactly what's in the can when you get it. It's kind of like champagne. There is a champagne, but unless you get it from a particular region in France, it's not. You can, it's sparkling wine, right? So you, there's right. limits to what you can call it. And so, champagne or sardines are like the champagne of the oceans, I guess. Oh. Uh, and so you can, 
you can find uh, a wide variety of actual fish species in what we call a sardine can. And for Maine, it was juvenile herring. That was the the product that they found uh, most suitable for for that canning process. Okay, so a sardine can be essentially any small fish that's packed into a can in some right. sort of prepared manner. Right. Think of sardine like the final product, like pork. Okay. You know, it, it's not. It's not a pig. It's pork. Sardine's not. Uh, oh. You know, not the actual species. It's the product that you're buying at the end. I think there's a lot of landlubbers like myself who would be who would who will be learning that today. So that's great. So okay. So a lot of your work teases out some of the surprising kind of labor uh, and capitalist consolidation implications of this of some of these broader economic changes by focusing on uh, the eastern Maine seacoast and the the herring fishery and the, the sardine industry. And so around 1900, if I understand correctly, the overwhelming majority of sardines produced in the United States were were canned in Maine. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, by by a very significant margin, we're talking, uh, you know, ninety percent or so were coming out of Maine. It, this is really before the California sardine industry comes on board. They come about uh, a decade or two later okay. and start to compete with the Maine um, industry. But you know. when does the herring slash sardine production become a real economic fixture? for Mainers, especially down East Mainers. Yeah, it's in the uh, end of the 1870s and and into the 1880s, we start to see the real first efforts to develop a functioning sardine industry. It it takes a little bit to get started, but once it gets going in the 1880s, it really takes off very quickly. And it's it's a great example of a boom economy in the late 19th century. So in terms of this boom, uh, thinking about uh, in first the the fishing end, is this a an issue of people moving to the area like Eastport um, and and around there, uh, existing fishermen moving to where the the business is? Is this people taking up a new line of work to get involved in the herring fishery? Uh, what's the In terms of the the size of the workforce, what is new or just sort of a more modest change about it? It's more of a modest change and more of a transition of existing labor. You know, a lot of these herring fishermen who are actually overwhelmingly from New Brunswick that are supplying the main sardine industry is really New Brunswick fishermen that are doing that. They were already uh, fishermen. They were already coastal workers. They already practiced what uh, Dick Job had referred to as occupational pluralism. So they do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They're actually already catching a lot of juvenile herring that is mainly going into the bait industry, which is how I came across the industry, this study originally. Uh, and so they're catching a lot of these fish to sell to other fishermen, lobstermen to be used as bait. So now they're just going to be increasing their productivity in that one particular economic sector that they play in. Now, is this good paying work to be in? Uh, initially, it is. Initially, they they do make considerable uh, profits. There's a lot of 
observational reports from people outside the fisheries industry, from outside Maine, who, you know, people from the U.S. Fish uh, Bureau, you know, from Portland-based uh, uh, Board of Trade, uh, who are saying that they're seeing noticeable improvements in the living conditions of the Passamaquoddy Bay fishermen uh, okay. during these early boom years. You know, houses are getting nicer and, um, you know, the general environment and, and community is growing and, and it's getting a little bit healthier and its stability uh, as a result. But uh, it comes crashing down pretty quickly thereafter, too. So, okay. So one aspect of, you know, labor history and jobs, it's more than just money. There's a there's a cultural, there's a social aspect. Uh, we've done previous episodes about the paper mills in parts of Maine. We've done others about uh, uh, the potato growers in Aroostook County. And so, and each of these lines of work produced, you know, kind of their own cultures and, and local pride. So what is, as far as you can tell, is there... Is there a real kind of like cultural impact or legacy of the yeah. the herring fishery uh, on the main Canadian borderlands? There are a lot of different occupations that are involved here. And we can sort of boil it down to two categories, those who worked on the water and those who worked on the shore. And so for those who worked on the water, you're dealing primarily with the fishermen. But you also have people whose job it is to ferry the fish from the catch to the, to the canneries. But for the fishermen, the ware fishermen themselves, there's a real sense of pride in what they do. Um, I consider them a kind of craft, uh, artisanal-based uh, job where uh, they control knowledge, they control access to the occupation. They don't have a guild or a union or anything like that, but there's a real sense of, of pride and craft. There's also a strong sense of individualism and independence there. So they're kind of like a yeomanry style, like you okay. think about Jeffersonian yeoman farmers and that image that we've created, that that's what I see in the herring fishermen. So they're not like a, uh, a type of working class uh, there's no sort of class consciousness type thing there. I think it's more like uh, artisan craftsmen and kind of yeoman farmers uh, there okay. because of their sense of independence that they have. They're actually quite resistant to the idea of forming a union, for example. For the shore workers, uh, it's quite a bit different. Uh, there is overwhelmingly women. Uh, we do see some child labor, but not for very long and not as much as pop culture has presented it. Uh, it's mainly female labor, and it's almost all migratory labor. Most of them are women from New Brunswick who moved to Eastport and Lubeck for the summer to work in these plants. We can speculate that they might be the wives and daughters of those fishermen. It seems to make sense. Okay. Um, but we have very little information about who they actually were. And I'm, I'm talking really just up to the 1920s. So, right. uh, and specifically down east. Western Maine is, is a little bit different of a story. Okay. And yeah, to return real quick to the the fishermen. So if they're they view themselves and seem to be widely viewed as skilled workers, and if we're going to go Marxist here, they own the means of production. They own their their yeah. boats and their tools and their nets. Yes, yeah, okay. I think that would be fair. Uh, they yes. own the, the the knowledge that goes into it, but right. you know, I wouldn't apply that Marxist theory to them because I think they would consider themselves, and I would consider them them to be more like the yeoman farmer. Gotcha. Than the sort gotcha. of Marxist right. proletariat. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. 
about these the people yeah working in the uh, in the sardine canneries that that pop up as well then so as you said you know that's a lot uh, heavily women some children do we know are these are, are there uh, french canadian quebecois coming into this industry as well like in uh in other parts of of northern new england or the maritimes or is this more uh anglophone maritime canadians yeah, in, in down east Maine, it's almost all Anglo-Canadians. I don't see many Acadians coming in. Again, we don't have a ton of information on them. There's a couple business records that are left either at the University of Maine Special Collection or in uh, Eastport's library. And so we get a few names here and there that we can cross-reference with some census data. But we don't have a ton, uh, but I did not see really any names that struck me as Acadian okay. or Quebecois. I think so, that'll be different if you get to Western Maine and later in later in the 20th century. Okay. Western Maine had a had a, a an arm of this industry later in the 20th century? Yes, they did. The industry sort of moves geographically west towards uh more like uh where Acadia is and Penobscot Bay. Oh, um, okay. It sort of relocates itself. Um, and that okay. has more to do with the availability of fish because the fisheries in the Pessimacuati Bay were were overfished and eventually that local population is is uh is dwindled. Okay. One of the big stories that you tell uh in your work is this real consolidation of sardine production. Uh, we see a real, uh, yeah, a real move of more uh, consolidated industrial capitalism uh, in the area, and then a, a process of what you uh, what you point out as vertical integration in the sardine process. For those of us who who may be a bit rusty on terms like this, uh, first of all, when these companies are engaged in vertical integration, could you clarify uh, what that involves? So there's vertical integration and horizontal integration. So vertical integration is when an industry expands its operations vertically on the production line. So they move to try to consolidate every step of production from the extraction of the raw material through the processing uh, uh, steps, transportation, infrastructural movement of products, all the way up to the retail and eventual sale of the product. And horizontal integration is where a company tries to absorb its competitors in one of those steps of production, say, all the on one step of the processing, they're going to try to integrate their competitors there. Gotcha. And we see both efforts made uh, at both of those in the sardine industry. Okay. And so in Down East Maine, what does this consolidation process look like and when does it take place? So what we see is a number of efforts by the buyers of the herring fish, the, the actual canneries themselves. Mm -hmm. We see a number of efforts for them to consolidate their control over the purchasing of sardines into some sort of combine, uh, trust, uh, cooperative was the word they would have used. And so instead of going out to buy herring fish from the fishermen independently, they would say, look, we're all going to buy uh, the herring for $10 a barrel and nobody pay more than that or less than that. So there's sort of like a price fixing scheme uh, that the canneries get involved with um, 
uh, to control how much money they're going to spend on the herring fish. They try this a number of different times throughout the late 19th century. It mm -hmm. never really works until the 1920s when they finally get their act together. And in the 1920s, there, they successfully form what they call a trade association. We would call it a trust. Of course, they're not going to use that word, but um, <laughs> uh, we would call it a trust. And they form this trade association. And then they issue uh, a letter saying we won't pay more than at first it's 15, then it becomes 10, and then it's eventually it's $5 uh, a barrel for herring fish. Okay. So they eliminate that free market competition element of purchasing herring. Presumably, the uh, the fishermen themselves mobilized against this to some degree, uh, resisted. What what kind of response did this get from the from the herring fishers? So this was a a huge challenge to the herring fishermen because once the buyers of the fish get together and say we're only going to spend ten dollars a barrel. They've effectively eliminated the auctioning system that had been in place for several decades at that point, where the herring fishermen would collect all the herring that they had caught in their ware, and then they would auction it off to the buyers. And that will, as auctions do, elevate the price. So mm -hmm. you've got one cannery bidding, and then another cannery bidding, and then a third cannery bidding, and a fourth cannery bidding, and the price goes up and up and up, all to the benefit of the fishermen. So when they eliminated that by saying, no, we're not going to bid for these prices, we're going to pay you $10, and the first one that gets to your ware gets to buy them. We're going to eliminate that competition. So the fishermen try uh, a number of different strategies. They They try to unionize, but that doesn't work. They tried to get the provincial government and even the federal government in Canada to throw up a tariff that would prevent the export of any uh, fish that was sold below a certain price. That doesn't work. They also try a kind of boycott where they refuse to sell at lower mm. prices. Uh, and that also uh, doesn't work. Uh, and uh, the canneries are quite successful in eliminating this control that the herring fishermen had over the price of the of the herring over the value of their labor now were the the workers in the sardine canneries did they, were they invested in this as far as you can tell either way did they feel some sort of solidarity with uh with the fishermen did they perceive a benefit for themselves either from lowering the price of the fish or or not yeah, that's a, a good question and a very hard one to answer. And I was not really able to find an answer to that. On the one hand, the longer the fishermen held out for better prices, that would be the longer before the canneries would open and start canning those fish, which means all the workers in the canneries were just sitting around waiting for the canneries to open for them to get a job. Ah. So the fishermen's protest was directly hurting the cannery workers. I didn't see any language to that, though. Like, I, we just know that. Like, that's obviously what's going to happen. Mm. But it's not like they were writing letters to the newspaper or petitioning or, or like saying, hey, fishermen, you need to sell your fish so that we can get a job. We don't see any of that language. Okay. There's also fairly decent circumstantial evidence that there's family relationships between these people. So you would mm. think the cannery workers would be like, well, that's my uncle that's out there. And so 
you know, I have some some tie there. But again, we we hear very few voices from the cannery workers themselves. This was always kind of a frustrating part of my research. And the cannery workers themselves, I'm going to go out on a limb here since you described the workforce, uh, mm-hmm. far lower wage classed as unskilled. Yes, significantly okay. lower okay. wage. Now, there were right. some skilled workers who mm-hmm. who uh, did the soldering of the cans early on, okay. and they were all men, and they were skilled tinsmiths. Mm. Uh, but they uh, introduced a machine that mechanizes that process uh, in the 1890s, and that workforce is immediately, almost overnight, eliminated. Gotcha. And after that, it's it's almost all women, very low pay, and not not good work. This is not really, you know, work that they would be real excited to do. It's it's messy mm-hmm. and it's uh you gotta wield a knife. There's there's definitely skill involved. I wouldn't sure. say it's unskilled. And that is why I said yes. classed as because yeah. I, you yes. know, yeah. all kinds of jobs that are supposedly referred to as unskilled are very difficult. And you know, the ordinary person could not walk into them. Yeah, you know, the, the, whether it's the, fast food yeah. or anything else, yeah. I don't mean to disrespect anybody who actually does that. Like it's real hard. Yeah. So yeah, the, the dexterity that was needed mm-hmm. is is actually quite impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they had an existing, you know, there was they they had a labor pool that did this type of work. Uh it's not all that different than canning other types of food. It takes mm-hmm. the same sort of coordination between your fingers and your hands and your eyes to do that work. So Okay. And I should have asked this earlier, but there's, uh, is there any indication that the sardine canneries relied on migrant labor uh, to the extent that other industries in in kind of Northern Maine and Canadian Maritime sometimes did? Yes, absolutely. I refer to them as a migrant labor force, uh, again, because they're coming from New, I mean, it's not a long migration, but Mm -hmm. they're coming from New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly, the people working in the canneries in Eastport and Lubeck are coming from New Brunswick and they stay there for a couple months. The the cannery season is pretty short. Um, It's really just the summer months. Uh, Sometimes it's only two, July and August, and that's about it. And Mm -hmm. they live at a lot of them live in uh, what's effectively company housing, Uh, these little they're not shacks, they're cottage-like mm-hmm. places. And actually in, in Eastport, there's still a couple of them there. It's kind of cool. You can see a couple of oh. these little houses that are kind of cute little vacation cottages now. There's there's three of them, I remember, right in a row that are still there. It's kind of neat. Okay. So in the 1920s, the big producers managed to crush this relatively independent workforce before we start getting into some big picture things, after 1930 or so, what does the herring fishery look like? Like, how long yeah. does it last in a less independent form? And, you know, what are these, do these fishermen turn into almost kind of just kind of corporate em- employees associated with one cannery or something? Yeah, they they remain an independent workforce. Uh, They remain sort of a subcontracted workforce, but the big difference is the value of their labor in terms of their compensation is now set by the factories, uh, Mm -hmm. the canneries, not not themselves and not via the auctioning system. So the canneries still maintain a control that we're going to compensate you for your labor at this rate. Whereas before, 
the the fishermen controlled the compensation of their labor. So they're they're not employees. They're still independent contractors, but they don't have the degree of control that they once had. And again, the industry moves more west and or south to western Maine, and it, it never really recovers. It continues to decline, um, and that that has more to do with consumer interest and consumer demand uh, declines quite a bit for sardines. People just don't eat sardines. Yeah, anymore. when does that happen? Because I certainly, I yeah. confess, I am not a consumer of sardines. I see yeah. them in the store, but you know. You know, that's a great question. There's a um, there's a general decline in seafood consumption through the 20th century as uh, vegetables and fruit and meat, uh, you know, farm meat, uh, you know, beef and pork becomes mm-hmm. more readily available and less expensive. Uh, and so, you know, for most of history, seafood and fish were consumed by those who could not afford or did not have access to beef and pork, you know, and so when access to those products become more wide, when they become more widely available at lower prices, more and more people shift. Um, We also, the big, a big hit is the creation of breakfast cereals. You know, sardines was a breakfast meal. Really? And yeah. And so we start to see uh, breakfast cereals emerge in 1920s and 30s and 40s. Uh, sardines were also sort of a working class lunch uh, box meal, your, your pal, lunch pal. And, you know, we start to see more sandwiches come mm-hmm. in, you know, like the sandwiches, eating a sandwich is relatively new in terms of our consumer habit. And so we start to see a real decline. And we also can't forget that, honestly, we have to be honest with ourselves and your, your listeners not might not like this, but Maine sardines had a well-deserved reputation of poor quality. Uh, They were not uh, within the realm of sardines. They couldn't really compete with the higher quality that's being produced in California or overseas from Norway. A lot of that had to do with the type of oil they used. Uh, Maine used cotton seed oil uh, rather than olive oil. And so that produced a, a, a lower grade product. You know, prohibition had a big impact as well. Believe it really? or not, because yeah, I mean, like sardines were commonly available in taverns. Oh, um, and so people would eat it with their beer, and uh, well, so and if they're salty, yeah, it's, you know the uh, yeah. the establishments want to give you salty stuff. Yeah, so it's uh, like the pretzels of the uh, yeah of the early twentieth century. So actually, prohibition had a pretty big impact on sardines as well. So so a lot of factors contributed to the decreasing consumer demand for for sardines. But what we, what we can say with a great deal of confidence is that that demand goes down and continues to go down throughout the 20th century. Hmm. So maybe sardines, there is this category, you know, and especially if you're our age and you grew up later, you know, if you're like a Gen X or a millennial or something, and then maybe your, your parents had this nostalgia for these foods that you just think are really gross. And most mm-hmm. people in later generations don't like them anymore. My dad growing up, I remember he really liked liver sausage and I don't know anybody yeah. else who really liked that. I have a feeling I rarely see it in the stores anymore. I think he laments it's, it's decline. Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe sardines are kind of like that. Um, Definitely are. They're the previous generation. So like, yeah, uh, you know, I'm I'm late 40s. So like it would would have been my my grandfather 
would have been the one rejecting sardines. So my great grandfather would have mm. probably eaten a lot of sardines. And then my grandfather who grew up in the thirties and four got, you know, was a, was a man in the forties and had a family of his own. He probably would very occasionally eat sardines. So my grandpa Bernard, who I never met, he was born uh, before 1910. Uh, and my dad told me, I remember that uh, his father, he would eat hardtack <laughs> and which is funny to me. Cause you know, it's associated with the civil war. But apparently grandpa liked hardtack and my dad thought it was just the most disgusting thing ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's flavorless. Uh, yeah. And but grandpa was very much like he came of age during the Great Depression uh, as a as a young man and as an employee and all. And uh, he I think it really shaped him. And so he ate this, this cheap food uh, yeah. that he grew attached to. So yeah. um, well, one thing when I yeah. when I started tracing the sales of the sardine cases which i didn't actually write about in the articles i didn't feel like i had enough evidence for it but i would like track i would look at the shipping destination a lot of it is going to the american southern states hmm. and you know i i think it's probably going to sharecroppers um, oh it's, yeah it's pretty inexpensive source right. of, of protein that. That's my guess, but I don't have sure. enough there to publish anything on it. So. Right. It's interesting how the class dynamics of seafood have really changed since, I don't know, probably definitely after World War II, but that's probably too broad, right? In the sense that you're absolutely right when you think that even so before the Industrial Revolution, yeah, like salted cod and other kinds of dried fish were very much the food of poorer people who couldn't get anything else. And it was really important. And that that attitude, you know, that remains the case. And of course, now there's not all seafood, but so much seafood is considered fancier or special, yeah. even if you live on the coast. Yeah. There's a concerted effort to do that, though, Ian. Mm. There's uh, during the 30s and 1940s in particular, the fishing industry uh, made a concerted effort to rebrand themselves as as a commodity for the middle class. Uh, and I write about this in my latest book, Eating the Ocean. And mm. it it's just focuses on Canada, but I think it's true for the United States as well. Uh, there's a real effort to change the, the consumer understanding of seafood and to turn it into a middle class diet. There's actually a phrase they use um, from plebeian to prince. Uh, uh -huh. we see in a lot of the communication and advertising campaigns. And a lot of that has to do with the increased availability and ability to present fresh fish, not right. salted or pickled or smoked, but actually fresh, which is how most of us eat fish today. You go to the sea, you go to the market, you're going to buy fresh fish. Uh, or and, at least flash frozen, if not. Right. That's that I would that falls under the category of what they consider fresh. So, oh, OK. OK. Yeah. Uh, anything that's not canned, smoked or pickled or salted. Gotcha. Um, okay. So like your typical fish fillet or your your salmon mm -hmm. steaks, you know, which aren't mm -hmm. cheap. You know, you're looking no. at at least 10 bucks a pound if you buy yeah. the cheap stuff and yeah. considered what you can get ground beef for. It's. It's a pretty expensive dish. Yeah, it's it's fascinating the way that that these that, you know this is where and I'm sure you know you you know this and agree on this, but you know for the for our audience that in the way that 
you know, labor and economic history are also, you just got to factor in consumer, uh, consumer yeah. behavior as well. And I think that's something that that's something that earlier generations of economic historians didn't do as much of, they were really interested in production, but mm -hmm. far less in consumption, but like they, they go together, you know, these things yeah. matter. hundred percent with you. And that's the, that's the rationale behind my, my latest book, the eating the ocean book is uh you know to to talk about the consumer history of seafood because they're really uh not many economists or historians really talking about that it's all production side right well i'm i'm really looking forward to that uh now i i want to ask you thinking bigger picture so the the story that you discussed with the the herring fisheries and the, and the canning uh industry is it's one of a loss of labor power and i confess for me when I was in my in my training, learning to be a historian, one of the the reasons for me that I was maybe less enamored of labor history as I understood it is it was depressing and it was usually a story of declension. And of course, not always, but it's uh, along with environmental history, there is this difficult to avoid aura of declension around a lot of the histories we read. Right? Mm -hmm. Of there are independent workers. And then some sort of big conglomerate crushes them. There is an environment, it's reasonably functional, and then humanity comes and messes it up. Yeah. So what is your response? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just put you on the spot here and <laughs> to kind of uh, defend your, your twin uh, specialties. What is your response to people like me who say that to you? Because I know I'm not the first person to air those kinds of sentiments to you. Yeah, uh, my response is that you know, unfortunately, you're probably right most of the time. Oh man, um, okay. It is it is an unfortunately <laughs> sad story. If you okay. go out looking for the the labor's victory over the big corporation, the ability to retain artisanal status or independence or yeomanry, you're going to have a hard time finding it. And so this this article I had written that we're we're talking about here was largely written in response to a, a much older article by Dick Judd, who, who was one of my advisors at the University of Maine, where he did argue that the Maine herring fisheries were successful in, in, in resisting uh, the introduction of scenes. We don't need to get into the details of that, but I actually find it to be wrong. Mm. Um, and so I, I have even taken a narrative that was not declensionist and turned it into a declensionist uh, story. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Restoring so, the, to, to the, the natural order of your, things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in this case, it is. I think the story is one of decline. The environment, however, I'm a little bit more prepared to to respond to that. And oh, that's good. I, I think what we're actually seeing, especially in the environmental history of New England and Atlantic Canada, is a restorative narrative. There's more and more scholars talking about things like the, the rewilding of the landscape uh, the emergence of a second nature, which is actually titled Dick Judd's, one of Dick Judd's most recent books is Second Nature. Hmm. Um, we even I've even written some stuff playing around with the concept of third nature. Hmm. And the project I'm, I'm working on right now, which has nothing to do with seafood or even Maine, is about uh, the value of suburban and urban wooded parks and how we can successfully turn 
agrarian commercial or even industrial spaces into green environments. And I'm looking specifically at uh, cranberry bogs in Southeast Massachusetts that are being uh, rewild and restored to wetlands uh, oh. in all the great habitat uh, that they offer and the mitigation to global warming and flood control and all kinds of other great benefits that we humans gain from this rewilding of our landscapes. And so you can't have a declensionist narrative forever because that will eventually mean the doom of humanity eventually yeah. has to turn around. <laughs> and I think from an environmental history perspective, we're seeing more and more research on on that turning around moment. Well, that's great. So focusing again on the, the gloomier half of the equation, labor, yeah. I'm curious. So the, the story that you, you present to us, this loss of labor power, uh, the way I've been thinking about it in, in other contexts as well, when looking at the technological changes as well as human decisions, people sometimes assign different causalities for why uh, a previously independent or, or reasonably uh, lucrative labor regime fails. And, you know, the story of a new technology uh, changing patterns of work and, and pay is, is an old one. So in this case uh, of the herring fishery and the sardine plants, how much of this do you see as just a case of technological changes in, you know, the canning production? right? And sort of automation mm -hmm. as being the agent of disruption and, and the breaking of labor power versus human factors, whether it's just business consolidation or changes in legal regimes, right? Where the companies manage to, to use the law to their own benefit at the expense of, of working people. Yeah. Good question. I don't see a lot of technology, actually. Uh, okay. We see the introduction of automation of the of the soldering of the tins. So tinsmiths are kicked out because of technology. They're a pretty small demographic. Okay. And then if we fast forward into the latter part of the 20th century, we do see the introduction of scenes, which have a big impact on ware fishermen. But it was one of the most fascinating things about the ware fishermen is the technology changes uh, very little from a pre-European contact is something indigenous people did. Uh, the same basic strategies that were used to catch herring fish uh, used by indigenous people for you know hundreds of years before Europeans got here is still being used in the 19th century, even into the 20th century. You know, it's, it's manpower and it's logs and it's twigs and it's brush and it's stuff you find in the woods that you, you put these things together. So I don't see a lot of technology there. It's more the human decisions, the uh, decision among the canneries to to actively go after where fishermen uh, to actively eliminate their ability to control what they're compensated for their labor. And uh, again, go back to what we were talking about before is the, the shifts in consumer habits. You know, one of the biggest negative impacts on the working ware fishermen of down East Maine is that people don't want their products anymore. And so the, the demand for sardines go down. That puts them in a situation where they have to sell the herring fish for whatever they can possibly get for it, which advantages the canneries. And uh, 
those who are able to consolidate the power were able to win out. So it's more human decisions, I think, than technology. Okay. Okay. Did the fishermen attract significant uh, public sympathy as this was going on as kind of, oh, these independent fishers, they're being, you know, taken advantage of by the big guy or something? Yeah, uh, not too much. Um, the Eastport Sentinel, which is the main newspaper of the area, begins, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century is a very pro-fisherman newspaper. But by the 1920s, it's it's shifted quite a bit and it's very much a pro-cannery newspaper. Huh. And that's because it is beginning to see that what the industry needs is efficiency and rationality. And they think the canneries will bring this and create a stable economy uh, rather than a boom bust economy. They're not alone in this. This is a very popular way of thinking in the 1920s all across the United States. Uh, there's this real sense that we, we should allow corporations to get bigger because they're going to create order and efficiency. And we can eliminate recessions because we'll have all this logic and scientific management we can eliminate the unpredictabilities of capitalism and uh, create order out of the chaos of our economy. Uh, they just coming out of a pretty big recession in, after World War I. And so there's a great deal of uh, faith in this. Herbert Hoover is Secretary of Commerce. He's pushing this really aggressively. Mm -hmm. Of course, we know how it all turns out. Right. right? But they didn't. Um, well, right. they, had, they, didn't they had Fordism. And that particularly yeah. American form of corporate welfareism, where yes. you don't need the government providing benefits for you if your large, successful employer does. Right. And we associate this with big companies like mm -hmm. Ford or U.S. Steel or something like that, American Tobacco Company. But, you know, little sardine canneries in Eastport, Maine bought into this, too, Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, little newspapers like the Eastport Sentinel bought into this, too. So we don't see much sympathy for okay. the fishermen. They're seen as not modern. They're, there's not a direct attack of them either. Mm -hmm. But uh, and I should say the Eastport Sentinel was particularly bad at predicting the future. <laughs> um, they're constantly saying, oh, prices are going to go up and they never go up. And they say, oh, the canneries are going to open next Tuesday and they don't ever open. And so they're, mm. they continually get things wrong. Uh, throughout this whole period so okay so this is a different case then because i'm thinking you know thinking about products that are changing in their desirability and popularity and then some element of sentimentalization like the coal mining uh the coal yeah. miners today yeah are you know faced with this thing that uh nobody wishes coal miners themselves ill but there's yeah. increasing agreement that the product that they're producing is not it was necessary but is not at this point desirable and there's you know actually you can argue a real disproportionate amount of political support for coal miners as such that even yeah. if people don't want what they're making that these are important jobs and i looked it up there are just under 60,000 people working as coal miners in 2023 yeah and the flip side, there are 166,000 librarians. <laughs> and I specifically pointed that one out because smarter folk have made this connection uh, than, than I have. And that is that there should be, there's a gender dynamic too often yeah. to which yeah. 
jobs the broader public is comfortable feeling a nostalgia for yeah uh, for what's being and sentimental about what's being lost and we're losing librarians too and i'm not directly equating them but if you consider how much attention the shrinking number of coal miners have received and i'm not suggesting anybody who got black lung in a coal mine doesn't deserve sympathy or assistance but uh in terms of the numbers right uh and the public imagery versus jobs that are disproportionately worked by women generally do not receive this yeah uh, this kinds of sympathy yeah there's definitely a masculinity angle to all of this there's a historian named matt mckenzie who has written specifically about this as it relates to the fisheries he's at the university of connecticut avery point and he's written about this sentimentalization of the individual strong masculine american fisherman with his uh you know yellow clad big white beard big strong hands Um, But what he has successfully shown is that the big corporations utilize that sentimentalism to their advantage by saying that, well, what we're going to do, what we're trying to do here is modernize the industry and make their work life significantly safer. So they would play up these stories of dorymen lost at sea or frozen hands to the oars to say, look, you want to help fishermen, let's help them not die and let's modernize and let's introduce big trawlers and factory ships and and these kind of things because they're all so much safer for the fishermen. And so let's honor this labor by eliminating these huge loss of life that we see every year through things like uh, gales and uh, the Yankee gale or Captain's Courageous or Fog Warning these sort of imageries by by artists that celebrate the masculinity, they turned it around and said, well, it's super dangerous and these guys are dying. And so let's modernize it. The, that modernization is also going to give those corporations a considerable amount of control. Interesting. So thinking holistically as we as we wrap up, you know, historians, we don't like we don't like trying to make one to one. Uh, comparisons or takeaways from stuff that happened in the dist- in the more distant past to today but looking at the the kind of portable aspects of your argument here and this story of the the herring fishermen and the, the sardine canneries what sort of big lessons do you take away from this process that happened down east so that's that's a uh, a good and difficult question it was a moment in time a relatively brief moment in time uh, where we see the rise and the fall of the herring fishermen of Pessimaquoddy Bay. I'm a union guy, you know that Ian. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if I could like go back in time and tell them, Hey, if you guys, if you guys really want to respond to this crisis, you need to unionize. Which they that individualism of yeomanry really prevented them from thinking in that collective sense and so they, once the corporations developed the collective and association, the, the fishermen never responded by creating an equally powerful collective on their side too. They tried once and it, and it didn't work. And then they, they continue to operate as individuals. So I think my big takeaway that you're asking here goes back to that declensionist narrative. If labor 
wants to stop the declension, uh, it needs to collectivize. It needs to unionize. It needs to figure out a way to exist within a capitalist system uh, rather than trying to destroy the capitalist system. And the only real way for working people to get ahead in a dog-eat-dog capitalist system is to collectivize and to to operate as a union. Okay. Well, as a card-carrying union member myself, you will not hear objections from me <laughs> uh, to to any of that. If we are uh, to, to end on this, in this dog-eat-dog capitalist system, can we promote something that you are are working on that our, our listeners sure. should check out? Sure. You know, I'm, I'm really happy with the publication of my new book, uh, Eating the Ocean, which is available through McGill-Queens University Press. It's on Canada and Canadian seafood. But I think it has a, a lot of interesting stories to talk about consumerism, masculinity, gender, uh, lots of stuff on nutrition and the debates about what constitutes healthy food. So I'm, they can check that out. That's I'm pretty proud of that publication. That's just come Excellent. out a couple months ago. Oh, it came out just a couple months ago. Excellent. Yep. Okay. So that's great. We will have a link to that in our various social media feeds. Uh, and then finally, spreading the love as we like to do. What is something that somebody else has come out with, uh, whether it is a book or an exhibit or some sort of production uh, that you think our our listeners should uh, should be aware of? Oh man, that's great. What's the most the most influencing thing I've read recently is uh, Dick Judd's book Second Nature, which I guess isn't super recent anymore. I guess it's a, little, okay. it's a few years old, but I really like uh, that. There's a uh, um, there's a lot of good stuff on on workers in nature that's been coming out. Uh, Josh McFadden has got some great stuff on the hemp industry in the prairies and in uh, North Dakota and in, in the Canadian prairies. It talks about yeoman farmers and things. Oh, okay. uh, so we like we like his work as well. Excellent. Okay. Well, we will have links to those shared as well. Brian Payne, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we will speak again soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. That's another show in the can. Review us, share us, and spread the word near and far if you like the show. Join us soon for a special episode discussing the craft of history with two pivotal early American historians involved in a massive project to collect, edit, and publish documentary sources in Native North American history. We talk about how scholars go about gathering and editing collections of documents hundreds of years old, the thought and work and preparation that goes into it, and the role of these edited collections in furthering education and in democratizing the field of history. That's next time on Mainly History.